Section 23 of England. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Adrian Stevens. The World Story, Volume 9, England. Edited by Eva March Tapan. Section 23. The Last Danish Invasion, 1066. By Edward Bulwer Lytton. After the death of Edward the Confessor, Harold, Earl of Wessex, was elected king. William of Normandy averred that Edward had promised him the crown, which in any case he had no right to do, and that he should defend his claim. His preparations, however, took many months, and in the meantime Harold's brother Tostig encouraged Harold Hadrada, king of Norway, to make an attack upon England. The editor. At the news of this foe on the north side of the land, King Harold was compelled to withdraw all the forces at watch in the south against the tardy invasion of William. It was the middle of September, eight months had elapsed since the Norman had launched forth his vaunting threat. Would he now dare to come? Come or not, that foe was afar, and this was in the heart of the country. Now, York having thus capitulated, all the land round was humbled and awed, and Hardrada and Tostig were blithe and gay, and many days, thought they, must pass ere Harold the King can come from the south to the north. The camp of the Norsemen was at Stamford Bridge, and that day it was settled that they should formally enter York. Their ships lay in the river beyond. A large portion of the armament was with the ships. The day was warm, and the men with Hardrada had laid aside their heavy mail, and were making merry talking of the plunder of York, jeering at Saxon valour and gloating over thoughts of the Saxon maids, whom Saxon men had failed to protect, when suddenly between them and the town rose and rolled a great cloud of dust, high it rode and fast it rolled, and from the heart of the cloud shone the spear and the shield. "'What army comes yonder?' said Harold Hardrada. "'Surely,' answered Tostig, "'it comes from the town that we are to enter as conquerors,' and can be but the friendly Northumbrians who have deserted Morcow for me. Nearer and nearer came the force, and the shine of the arms was like the glancing of ice. Advance the world, Ravager! cried Harold Hardrada. Draw up and to arms! Then, picking out three of his briskest youths, he dispatched them to the force on the river, with orders to come up quick to the aid. For already through the cloud and amidst the spears was seen the flag of the English king. On the previous night, King Harold had entered York, unknown to the invaders, appeased the mutiny, cheered the townsfolks, and now came, like the thunderbolt borne by the winds, to clear the air of England from the clouds of the north. Both armaments drew up in haste, and Hardrada formed his array in the form of a circle, the line long but not deep, its wings curving round till they met, shield to shield. Those who stood in the first rank set their spear shafts on the ground, the points level with the breast of a horseman, those in the second with spears yet lower, level with the breast of a horse, thus forming a double palisade against the charge of cavalry. In the centre of this circle was placed the ravager of the world, and round it a rampart of shields. Behind that rampart was the accustomed post at the onset of battle for the king and his bodyguard, but Tostig was in front, with his own Northumbrian lion banner and his chosen men. While this army was thus being formed, the English king was marshalling his force in the far more formidable tactics which his military science had perfected from the warfare of the Danes. 
that form of battalion, invincible hitherto under his leadership, was in the manner of a wedge or triangle, so that, in attack, the men marched on the foe presenting the smallest possible surface to the missiles, and, in defence, all three lines faced the assailants. King Harold cast his eye over the closing lines, and then, turning to Gurth, who rode by his side, said, Take one man from yon hostile army, and with what joy should we charge on the Northmen? I conceive thee, answered Gurth mournfully, and the same thought of that one man makes my arm feel palsied. The king mused, and drew down the nasal bar of his helmet. Thanes, he said suddenly, to the score of riders who had grouped round him, follow! And shaking the rein of his horse, King Harold rode straight to that part of the hostile front from which rose, above the spears, the Northumbrian banner of Tostig. Wondering, but mute, the twenty thanes followed him. Before the grim array, and hard by Tostig's banner, the king checked his steed and cried, Is Tostig, the son of Godwin and Githa, by the flag of the Northumbrian earldom? With his helmet raised, and with his Norwegian mantle flowing over his mail, Earl Tostig rode forth at that voice and came up to the speaker. What wouldst thou with me, daring foe? The Saxon horseman paused. His deep voice trembled tenderly as he answered slowly, Thy brother King Harold sends to salute thee. Let not the sons from the same womb wage unnatural war in the soil of their fathers. What will Harold the king give to his brother? answered Tostig. Northumbria already hath been bestowed on the son of his house's foe. The Saxon hesitated, and a rider by his side took up the word. If the Northumbrians will receive thee again, Northumbria shalt thou have, and the king will bestow his late earldom of Wessex on Morcar. If the Northumbrians reject thee, thou shalt have all the lordships which King Harold hath promised to Gurth. This is well, answered Hostig, and he seemed to pause as in doubt. When made aware of this parley, King Harold Hadrada, on his coal-black steed, with his helm all shining with gold, rode from the lines and came into hearing. Ha! said Tostig then, turning round, as the giant form of the Norse king threw its vast shadow over the ground. And if I take the offer, what will Harold, son of Godwin, give to my friend and ally, Hadrada of Norway? The Saxon rider reared his head at these words, and gazed on the large front of Hadrada, as he answered loud and distinct. Seven feet of land for a grave, or seeing that he is taller than other men, as much more as his course may demand. Then go back, and tell Harold my brother to get ready for battle, for neither shall the skalds and the warriors of Norway say that Tostig lured their king in his cause to betray him to his foe. Here did he come, and here came I, to win as the brave win, or die as the brave die. A rider of younger and slighter form than the rest, here whispered the Saxon king, Delay no more, or thy men's hearts will fear treason. The tie is rent from my heart, O Hacko, answered the king, and the heart flies back to our England. He wavered his hand, turned his steed and rode off. The eye of Hardrada followed the horseman. And who, he asked calmly, is that man who spoke so well? King Harold, answered Tostig briefly. How? cried the Norseman, reddening. How was not that made known to me before? Never should he have gone back, never told hereafter the doom of this day. 
With all his ferocity, his envy, his grudge to Harold, and his treason to England, some rude notions of honour still lay confused in the breast of the Saxon, and he answered stoutly, Imprudent was Harold's coming, and great his danger, but he came to offer me peace and dominion. Had I betrayed him, I had not been his foe, but his murderer. The Norse king smiled approvingly, and turned to his chief, said dryly, That man was shorter than some of us, but he rode firm in his stirrups. And then this extraordinary person, who united in himself all the types of an age that vanished forever in his grave, and who is the more interesting, as in him we see the race from which the Normans sprung, began, in the rich, full voice that pealed deep as an organ, to chaunt his impromptu war-song. He halted in the midst, and with great composure said, That verse is but ill-tuned, I must try better. He passed his hand over his brow, mused an instant, and then, with his fair face all illumined, he burst forth as inspired, this time, air, rhythm, words also chimed in with his own enthusiasm, and that of his men, that the effect was inexpressible. It was, indeed, like the charm of those runes, which are said to have maddened the berserker with the frenzy of war. Meanwhile, the Saxon phalanx came on, slow and firm, and in a few minutes the battle began. It commenced first with the charge of the English cavalry, never numerous, led by Leofwine and Hacko, but the double palisade of the Norman spears formed an impassable barrier, and the horsemen, recoiling from the frieze, rode round the iron circle without other damage than the spear and javelin could effect. Meanwhile, King Harold, who had dismounted, marched, as was his wont, with the body of footmen. He kept his post in the hollow of the triangular wedge, whence he could best issue his orders. Avoiding the side over which Tostig presided, he halted his array in the full centre of the enemy, where the ravager of the world, streaming high above the inner rampart of the shields, showed the presence of the giant Hardrada. The air was now literally darkened with the flights of arrows and spears, and in a war of missives the Saxons were less skilled than the Norsemen. Still, King Harold restrained the ardour of his men, who, saw harassed by the darts, yearned to close on the foe. He himself, standing on a little eminence, more exposed than his meanest soldier, deliberately eyed the sallies of the horse and watched the moment he foresaw, when, encouraged by his own suspense and the feeble attacks of the cavalry, the Norsemen would lift their spears from the ground and advance themselves to the assault. That moment came, unable to withhold their own fiery zeal, stimulated by the tromp and the clash and the war hymns of their king and his choral skulls, the Norsemen broke ground and came on. "'To your axes and charge!' cried Harold, and passing at once from the centre to the front, he led on the array. The impetus of that artful phalanx was tremendous. It pierced through the ring of the Norwegians, it clove into the ramparts of shields, and King Harold's battle-axe was the first that shivered that wall of steel, his step the first that strode to the innermost circle that guarded the ravager of the world.' Then forth from under the shade of that great flag came, himself also on foot, Harold Hardrada. Shouting and chaunting, he leapt with long strides into the thick of the onslaught. He had flung away his shield, and swaying with both hands his enormous sword, he hewed down man after man, till space grew clear before him. 
and English, recoiling in awe before an image of height and strength that seemed superhuman, left but one form standing firm, and in front to oppose his way. At that moment the whole strife seemed not to belong to an age comparatively modern. It took a character of remotest eld, and Thor and Odin seemed to have returned to the earth. Behind this towering and titan warrior, their wild hair streaming long under their helms, came his skulls, all singing their hymns, drunk with the madness of battle, and the ravager of the world tossed and flapped as it followed, so that the vast raiment depicted on its folds seemed horrid with life, and calm and alone, his eye watchful, his axe lifted, his foot ready for rush or for spring, but firm as an oak against flight, stood the last of the Saxon kings. Down bounded Hardrada, and down shore his sword, King Harold's shield was cloven in two, and the force of the blow brought himself to his knee, but as swift as the flash of that sword, he sprang to his feet, and while Hardrada still bowed his head, not recovered from the force of the blow, the axe of the Saxon came so full on his helmet that the giant reeled, dropped his sword and staggered back. His skulls and his chiefs rushed around him. That gallant stand of King Harold saved his English from flight, and now, as they saw him almost lost in the throng, yet still cleaving his way, on, on, to the raven standard, they rallied with one heart, and shouting forth, Out, out, holy cross, forced their way to his side, and the fight now raged hot and equal, hand to hand. Meanwhile, Hardrada, born a little apart, and relieved from his dinted helmet, recovered the shock of the weightiest blow that had ever dimmed his eye and numbed his hand. Tossing the helmet on the ground, his bright locks glittering like sunbeams, he rushed back to the melee. Again, helm and mail went down before him. Again, through the crowd, he saw the arm that had smitten him. Again, he sprang forward to finish the war with a blow, when a shaft from some distant bow pierced the throat which the cask now left bare, a sound like the wail of a death-song murmured brokenly from his lips, which then gushed out with blood, and tossing up his arms wildly, he fell to the ground, a corpse. At that sight a yell of such terror and woe, and wrath all commingled, broke from the Norsemen, that it hushed the very war for the moment. On! cried the Saxon king. Let our earth take its spoiler. On to the standard, and the day is our own. On to the standard, cried Hacko, who, his horse slain under him, all bloody with wounds not his own, now came to the king's side. Grim and tall rose the standard, and the streamer shrieked and flapped in the wind, as if the raven had voice, when right before Harold, right between him and the banner, stood Tostig, his brother, known by the splendour of his mail, the gold work on his mantle, known by the fierce laugh and defying voice. What matters? cried Hacko. Strike, O king, for thy crown. Harold's hand gripped Hacko's arm convulsively. He lowered his axe, turned around, and passed shudderingly away. Both armies now paused from the attack, for both were thrown into great disorder, and each gladly gave respite to the other to reform its own shattered array. The Norsemen were not soldiers to yield because their leader was slain, rather the more resolute to fight, since revenge was now added to valour. Yet, but for the daring and promptness with which Tostig had cut his way to the standard, the day had already been decided. During the pause, Harold summoned Gurth and said to him in great emotion, For the sake of nature, for the love of God, go, O Gurth, 
go to Tostig, urge him now, Hadrada is dead, urge him to peace. All that we can proffer with honour, proffer, quarter and free retreat to every Norseman. Oh, save me, save us from a brother's blood. Gerth lifted his helmet, kissed the male hand that grasped his own. I go, said he, and so, bareheaded, and with a single trumpeter, he went to the hostile lines. Harold awaited him in great agitation, nor could any man have guessed what bitter and awful thoughts lay in that heart, from which, in the way to power, tie after tie had been wrenched away. He did not wait long, and even before Gerth rejoined him, he knew by a unanimous shout of fury, to which the clash of countless shields chimed in, that the mission had been in vain. Tostig had refused to hear Gerth, save in presence of the Norwegian chiefs, and when the message had been delivered, they all cried, We would rather fall one across the corpse of the other than leave a field in which our king was slain. Ye hear them, said Tostig, as they speak, speak I. Not mine this guilt too, O God, said Harold, solemnly lifting his hand on high. Now then, to duty. By this time the Norwegian reinforcements had arrived from the ships, and this for a short time rendered the conflict that immediately ensued uncertain and critical. But Harold's generalship was now as consummate as his valour had been daring. He kept his men true to their irrefragible line. Even if fragments splintered off, each fragment threw itself into the form of the resistless wedge. One Norwegian standing on the bridge of Stamford long guarded that pass, and no less than forty Saxons are said to have perished by his arm. To him the English king sent generous pledge, not only of safety for the life, but honour for the valour. The Viking refused to surrender, and it fell at last by a javelin from the hand of Hako. As if in him had been embodied the unyielding war-god of the Norsemen, in that death died the last hope of the Vikings. They fell literally where they stood. Many, from sheer exhaustion and the weight of their mail, died without a blow, and in the shades of nightfall Harold stood amidst the shattered rampart of shields, his foot on the corpse of the standard-bearer, his hand on the ravager of the world. "'Thy brother's corpse is born yonder,' said Hako in the ear of the king, as, wiping the blood from his sword, he plunged it back into the sheath. Young Olaf, the son of Hardrada, had happily escaped the slaughter. A strong detachment of the Norwegians had still remained with the vessels, and amongst them some prudent old chiefs, who, foreseeing the probable results of the day, and knowing that Hardrada would never quit, save as a conqueror or a corpse, the field on which he had planted the ravager of the world, had detained the prince almost by force from sharing the fate of his father. But ere those vessels could put out to sea, the vigorous measures of the Saxon king had already intercepted the retreat of the vessels, and then, ranging their shields as a wall round their masts, the bold Vikings at least determined to die as men, but with the morning came King Harold himself to the banks of the river, and behind him, with trailed lances, a solemn procession that bore the body of the scald king. They halted on the margin, and a boat was launched towards the Norwegian fleet, bearing a monk who demanded the chiefs to send a deputation, headed by the young prince himself, to receive the corpse of their king and to hear the proposals of the Saxon. The Vikings, who had anticipated no preliminaries to the massacre they awaited, did not hesitate to accept these overtures. 
twelve of the most famous chiefs still surviving, and Olav himself, entered the boat, and standing between his brothers Leofwine and Gurth, Harold thus accosted them. Your king invaded a people that had given him no offence. He has paid the forfeit. We war not with the dead. Give to his remains the honours due to the brave. Without ransom or condition, we yield to you what can no longer harm us. And for thee, young prince, continued the king, with a tone of pity in his voice, as he contemplated the stately boyhood and proud but deep grief on the face of Olaf, for thee wilt thou not live to learn that the wars of Odin are treason to the faith of the cross? We have conquered, we dare not butcher, take such ships as ye need for those that survive, Three and twenty I offer for your transport. Return to your native shores and guard them as we have guarded ours. Are ye contented? Among those chiefs was a stern priest, the bishop of the Orcades. He advanced and bent his knee to the king. O Lord of England, said he, yesterday thou didst conquer the form, today the soul, and never more may generous Norsemen invade the coast of him who honours the dead and spares the living. Amen, cried the chiefs, and they all knelt to Harold. The young prince stood a moment irresolute, for his dead father was on the bier before him, and revenge was yet a virtue in the heart of a sea-king. But lifting his eyes to Harold's, the mild and gentle majesty of the Saxon brow was irresistible in its benign command, and stretching his right hand to the king, he raised on high the other, and said aloud, Faith and friendship with thee and England evermore. Then all the chiefs rising, they gathered round the bier, but no hand in the sight of the conquering foe lifted the cloth of gold that covered the corpse of the famous king. The bearers of the bier moved on slowly towards the boat. The Norwegians followed with measured funereal steps, and not till the bier was placed on board the royal galley was there heard the wail of woe, but then it came loud and deep and dismal, and was followed by a burst of wild song from a surviving scald. The Norwegian preparations for departure were soon made, and the ships vouchsafed to their convoy, raised anchor, and sailed down the stream. Harold's eye watched the ships from the river banks. And there, he said at last, there glide the last sails that shall ever bear the devastating raven to the shores of England. End of section 23. This recording is in the public domain.